Hi, welcome to the podcast for the third issue of Itham. The first thing you might notice if you look at the site is that there is no red name. There's no collar for this issue. And the reason that I decided to do that is because I wanted to focus this issue on eco-poetics and uh, a more decentered approach to that felt appropriate. I also, before we get into the issue, which I'm, I'm very excited about, there's some fantastic pieces. I wanted to uh, sort of attribute, read a little piece that I also think might introduce the issue well by the poet C.D. Wright, who passed away very early this year. Uh, I was actually emailing with C.D. late in 2015 about potentially contributing a poem to Ivan. And so it was a, a huge shock to me. I, I didn't know her well or personally, but it was a, a shock to me um, when she passed, and it was a shock to the, the poetry world. And I've been reading her book that she put out um, very early this year uh, that has a, a very long eco-poetic title, The Poet, The Lion, Talking Pictures, El Farolita, A Wedding in St. Roche, the big box store, the warp in the mirror, spring, midnights, fire, and all. So I wanted to read this piece. She she talks a, a lot in this book about eco-poetics and about the work of her friend and uh, fantastic eco-poet Brenda Hillman. And in this, this one piece, she's talking about um, a sort of eco-poetic lens as the lens for poetry. And it, it, uh, the title of the short prose piece is called If One Were to Try to Describe the Heed That Poetry Requires. So from this, I was reading a popular science book titled Every Living Thing, focused on pioneers in biology. The obsession that takes over these individuals is a thing to ponder the ones who consume uncountable hours of their lives on their tender lab mice-like bellies in the dirt of tropical forests, watching army ants march over a resting boa constrictor while the scientists try to pick out the beetle disguised as army ants that follow and trick the ants into caring for them. The monomaniacal types, for example, Dan Jansen, whose project to name every living thing in the Guanacaste Reserve in Costa Rica was forced to change venue years into the process to the less various Smokies, and when funding from magical silicon pulled away from that project, too, continued to press on with his all-taxa biodiversity inventory with one intern, doomed without an army of ants and their guests to help, but oh so grand." not to mention the decades spent trying to verify magnificent theories, often right ones, such as Lynn Margulis's theory of endosymbiosis, accompanied by the challenges of single parenting, going without the encouragement of colleagues, lacking the funds to support a lonely hypothesis that occurred to her in the splendor of her youth and would consume the whole of her life and embody the entirety of her life. The piece goes on and the book is, is fantastic, but I think that what I took from this was uh, CD's really powerful comparison between science, science the methods of science and, and the methods of poetry, or, the, or maybe uh, better put, the purpose of science and the purpose of poetry, which I think that she sees as linked. And I think that's something that, 
that all of the poets in this uh, in this issue are exploring too. So maybe we can get right into it. So the first poem that I'll introduce here is by Judith Goldman. It's called The Gas Signs. And Goldman is a professor here in the English department at Buffalo. And it's this poem is from her book, Blank Mount, um, which is on Mont Blanc, the, the poem by uh, the romantic poet Shelley, but also the mountain in Europe, the highest peak in Europe. And in Goldman's own words, uh, the book takes Shelley's poem as a springboard for a speculative, poetic, critical practice that addresses future histories and past futures converging at the Anthropocene now. In the book, it's about science and climate change and the history of romanticism and, and much else. I'm, I'm very excited for its publication and, um, and to have this, uh, this sound poem from that book uh, here. So here's, here's Goldman's piece. Polycrystalline structure of polar ice, snow compaction versus water freezing, fog event, hoar layer condenses on snow surface, or rounded snow grains tightly packed by wind, air inclusion, atmosphere trapped, age scale of air and summit ice, grain boundaries in deep ice, ice grain size increases with depth, water veins along junctions in ice grain, mobile water isotopes gas exchange of air enclosures with surrounding ice, accumulation and diffusion, trapped gases along vertical axis, permeation coefficients of air constituents, gas concentration and dynamic disequilibrium, parameters for permeation, total air permeability, slow set, melt rate expressed in ice equivalent of constant density, boundary conditions for old ice, layers thin when ice is compressed, ice particle travels, vertical ice velocity, geothermal heat flux, heat diffusion and advection, diffuse upwards by thermal conduction, disturbed ice, irregular flow below a certain depth, ice has undergone substantial deformation, load pressure, bottom ice at pressure melting point, near bedrock high ice temps, gas and warm ice vanishing, melt water percolation, refreezing, air fractionation, diffusive smoothing from one air inclusion to another, Polydispersed bubble ensemble, free gas phase in the bubble, bubbles get smaller, no bubble smaller than, radius of an air inclusion, nucleation of air, clathrate, hydrates, and ice sheets, air bubble to hydrate, transformation rate, probability of bubbles to nucleate, surface disordering affects kinetics of clathration, global bubble to hydrate, transformation, conversion of single air bubbles post-nucleation, Ensembles of bubbles and hydrate crystals in polar ice phase change in air ice system. Gas mass balance and flux at pore close off transform in deeper ice layers. Metastable lattice of water. Guest gas molecules fill crystal lattice cages. Paleoclimate indicators. Diffusive losses of air bubble mass based on scatter gases trapped infrared radiation, controlled nucleation, bubbly ice, bubble number fraction, curvature of bubble wall, chemical potential, particulate, mineral, dust, aerosol, 
bipolar marine carbon seesaw, thermohaline pattern of surface and deep ocean currents, slowed down in ocean circulation, gas ocean store, cold holds more than warm, ice retreating triggers release, ice core gases leak. I love that poem. And I think one thing it, it's doing is, is forcing us to just sit with the, the phonetic excess of scientific language, just sit there with all of that jargon that's not bringing us any closer to understanding in a, in the, in a traditional scientific sense, but is maybe bringing us closer to a different kind of understanding or a different kind of urgency or emotion. The next piece that I that I want to turn to is by Jody Gladding, another sound poem, but but quite different. I first came across Gladding's work uh, by picking up this book uh, called Translations from Bark Beetle, where she took the the uh, patterns left by bark beetles in 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 bark and uses those as transcriptions to to do translations into English from the from beetle. And uh, this is building on her work as an eco-poet and, and also on her work as a, as a translator. She's uh, translated a number of books from uh, human languages uh, into English. Uh, so here's Gladding's piece. Uh, hi, this is Jody Gladding and the, this is a sonogram of Raven Calls. I'm amazed by Gladding's ability to do that. That that poem too is is from translations from Bark Beetle. The next poet I want to turn to is Joe Hall. Uh, Joe is a is a PhD student here at Buffalo right now, working on a dissertation on on restoration literature. He has published a few books. His third book is forthcoming. And he's also been thinking a lot about eco-poetics in, in his more recent work. Uh, here, here's Joe. How do I smell today? For Jake Levine. Someone makes coffee. And I hold my breath in the bathroom against someone else's extruding. It's not that nothing smells. It's that everything has its circumference of emission. 
This is shallow breathing, then someone makes coffee. Hand held over my mouth. Your palms come with a pump of extruded potato paste and cheese dust. I like them. I don't kiss you. My oils spill into the night, the tone of so much successful self-lubrication seeping under the door. The tone of a dead white guy putting tobacco in his face holes, the diffusion of his jaws soft with rot so water from a glass dribbles through his cheek. We labor through books, the metal bite on paper, our dog that was a touch on a membrane, faithful, who seeks the tender glands of the anus for information. Softly, go softly, tongue in the air. Downwind from the trades pushing continental west, east, north, south drifts. Someone makes coffee. She blows her nose. After a shift, the snot comes black. She gets done with the ward. Her hands smell basic ammoniac. He hangs his apron, walks five blocks, and still smells like butter. By cattle yards outside of Las Cruces, driving, nearly puking from the sun, drinking liquid from acres of corn-fed cow shit. But this was on a road trip. We. Holding a pear to his nose, that still sweet blossom, 60 miles to escape the plant emissions, a double shift from different air, if the atmosphere isn't anything like an airplane cabin, dumping pine green antiseptic on the expression of dissidents, bleachy and white absences that turn a young man on, that is this ground's faithful screen and second draft, someone is making coffee, remember? That's how you drip on your mother's labor. That's how you make mommy make you come, scrubbing the brush, lie in bleach, rasping her hand, draining the reservoir of her life in this pleasantly astringent milieu. Um, that poem makes me think about the, the that incredibly close attention that C.D. Wright describes in, in that essay when she's thinking about the popular science book that she's reading, uh, the sort of the biologist on, on her belly on the jungle floor and I think that I think Joe is, is modeling that kind of attention in that poem. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, the next poem I want to turn to is, is by a former uh, Buffalo PhD student, Jonathan Skinner, who is, I mean, he's really at the heart of uh, what this issue is is trying to think about. Uh, he founded the, the journal Ecopoetics. He has published uh, incredibly widely both poetry and, and criticism on Ecopoetics, and he's also um, done a lot of fields recording work. And so, I, I, rem I mean, when I first started exploring Jonathan Skinner's work, I realized that there was just, it was like opening up a kind of a whole uh, new world for thinking about sound poetry in the context of eco-poetry. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited to have this piece and um, it's, uh, it, you'll, you'll hear it's a, a kind of a blend of a field recording work that he's done and his own poems. Stirrup Notes. The stirrup transmits sound vibrations from the hammer and anvil to the oval window, a membrane covered opening to the inner ear it is the smallest and lightest named bone in the human body. If rhythm is pitch as time is all of sound, the whole physical universe nested vibrations, then each monad a locus, a center of vibration, an oscillator. Each system vibrates on its own clock, set the day the universe banged open, flinging clocks into space, interpenetrating, overlapping clocks, clocking clocks, 
external timekeepers are internal keepers. The inside rules without. In the polyrhythmic swirls of the entomological soundscape that was quickly an amphibian soundscape, that was soon an avian soundscape, that had always been a plant-based soundscape, how did the mute, sliding, crawling, swinging creatures emerge? Amphibians have a rhythm to their undulations, and maybe primates do, swinging through branches, mammals loping, striding, or running. Shaker buzz fills a hall, night's Arcadian symphony, cascades fall out over lattice of dragonfly wing. Light cons a sun into refracting rainbows through filmic material that is secreted without hindering the naked radiation. If waveworks orchestrate battles, perhaps rhythm was sloshed gravitationally in the dance between moon and earth, a cosmic scale replicated in the insect's shaking song. Sound spreads and leaks like odor, the soft catastrophe of space, a form of detention or agglutination of place rather than its dispersal into movement, the result of collisions, abrasions, impingements or minglings of objects, things become events, the divinity of sourceless sounds, an ear prone to damage by an excess of stimulus, involuted, devious, sequestered, esoteric, the room between medium and code, sound and museum, not like a musician, Suspended in chemical solution, the imperceptible perceived, an overwhelming feeling of proximity, crushing and caressing you at once, the percussive tones of compression waves as holes momentarily closed by waves, defying the natural acoustic mortality of silence, to reactivate the elements and release the stratifications, the passage from a kingdom of songbirds to that of insects, experts in stridulating, scratching, and scraping. I love that piece, and uh, one thing about it that I really appreciate is the, the it, it models for me the simultaneity that is possible in sound poems that uh, are, are is not possible in the same way on the page. So I think there's ways, obviously, to uh, to also figure simultaneously um, in a book form or or in a magazine. But uh, what we get there is we are listening to the the field recording and the sonic texture of that 
of those insects. And at the same time, Skinner is, is reflecting on those sounds and sort of opening up ways to think about those sounds. And at the same time, we're appreciating also the sonic texture of his own voice. And one thing that, that as I was listening to it uh, the first few times, I was noticing is often when you record, especially on a, on a laptop microphone, you'll get S sounds coming in really harsh and it'll almost sort of buzz out at the top of the S sound. And something very similar is happening in these recordings of the insects. Uh, that is, and that is, uh, to my ear, kind of an insect sound. And so there, there's, there's a lot of things kind of coming together for me in this, in this piece that I'm, I'm really excited to think more about as it sits there on Itham. Um, I should also a couple of notes about that. The, the sounds, the insect sounds, were recorded at Bard College on, uh, on the 21st of August in 2013, and uh, the words uh, are from November 2016 and uh, there's a there's an essay version of of the words too that appears in writing the field recording which is a, a, a an edition out of Edinburgh University Press also from this year last up is a piece by Nar Gavin Nar is a young poet who is getting a PhD at, at the University of Pennsylvania right now and I think is doing some really exciting work. I first came across the poem that sh that you're about to hear in a totally different format on a on a, a online site called Really System where the poem is published as a as a kind of digital visual poem called Hydra Ring Pine Land Field and what uh, Nar did was she's erasing the poem, she's lifting the poem out of a, a document about hydraulic fracturing, but uh, as the as the words kind of lift away from the document, the document underneath uh, grays away and disappears, so that the document that it's drawing from is is always almost legible, and the words are kind of constantly rising out of it uh, as you scroll. It's a really it's a fantastic uh, digital piece. You should go check it out at reallysystem.org. Uh, once you listen to the audio version, which I think functions actually completely differently, but is a, is a, this a wonderful complement to what's happening uh, with the digital piece. So I'm, I'm going to let Nar Gavin have the last word here. Um, I, I'm, I'm really uh, grateful to all the poets who contributed to this issue. Um, and also to, to people who've continued to send me submissions uh, through the website. Please continue to do that. I love hearing them, uh, and thanks for listening.
Thank you.